our Father and our God, that is our prayer, that you in fact would be our vision, that you would in fact inflame our hearts with the very heart of Jesus Christ, that Jesus would be our vision, and that we would capture a sense of his desire, his heart, his vision for a lost world that desperately needs to be saved and to be healed. And we pray, Father, that you would also reveal this morning his heart for the church and the mission on which he has placed us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the time of the year in church life in which we elect officers and appoint ministry chairs. And that's the primary purpose, at least one of them, of our annual meeting tonight at at 6 o'clock, which I hope you will all attend, especially if you are elect, I mean a member of the church. Just kidding. But those of you who aren't members, it's actually a wonderful opportunity for you to catch a glimpse of the, of the life and ministry here at the Village Church. We get to see the highlights of what has been a remarkable ministry year in 2021. We'll be praising God together this evening. But back to the electing of the ministry leaders, I find this time of the year to be a spiritually rewarding time. Uh, In the past month or so, the elders and the nominating committee have asked various people to take on certain roles and responsibilities. And in most cases, it has increased the prayer life of the one being asked. And usually our brothers and sisters wonder, am I really gifted for that kind of ministry? Or can I manage that ministry along with the other responsibilities that I'm called to fulfill Or maybe they even pull a Moses. You know what Moses said, not me, Lord. I can't speak. Get somebody else. Only to hear God say to them, who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? But is it not I, the Lord, whereupon in faith our brother and sister says, okay, Lord, By your grace and strength, I'll trust you, and I'll do it. That's the kind of interactions we see this time of the year. It can be a very profitable time spiritually for individuals as well as for the church. Now, it's interesting. When we ask folks to take on some ministry responsibilities, one of the things that we don't normally say is something like this. You know, if you take on this ministry, I can guarantee you'll be successful. Kind of an audacious promise to make, isn't it? Life doesn't usually work out that way. There are few guarantees in life or in ministry for that matter. But you know, there is one ministry that Jesus himself asks us all to take on. One ministry that in fact he commands us to take on where he absolutely guarantees success. And who wouldn't want to take on a ministry that is guaranteed to be successful? Now, we are in a series on the core values of the Village Church that I've been preaching through the last couple of weeks. As I shared in the introduction to that series a number of years ago, after a thorough examination of our community, our gifts, our resources, that kind of thing, we we developed a Village Church mission statement. 
And as, as it was a statement that resonated with our community and with our congregation. It goes like this. We are building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, I unpacked the background of that statement a couple of weeks ago. It's worth going back and watching it again if you didn't have the opportunity to check it out. But suffice it to say that our mission statement gives direction and priority to our ministry here at the Village Church. And that our ministries are, are constantly asking, how can our ministry help to build a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope in Jesus Christ? It's remarkable to me how many of our leaders know that statement by heart, can rattle it off in a moment's notice. Most of you perhaps can do that at this point. But we also recognize that as helpful as that mission is, uh, we needed to put some flesh on those bones. We needed to know what kind of people we are or aspire to be here at the Village Church. We needed to define our core values, those non-negotiables, those issues to which we are committed regardless of our changing circumstances. And so we identified, our leaders did, seven core values. The glory of God, the Word of God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of Christ, the body of Christ, prayer, and then the one we're going to examine this morning, the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission is the ministry that Jesus calls the church to fulfill. It's the global ministry of the church that takes the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to every corner of the globe and to every people group in the planet. It's also the ministry Jesus guarantees will be successful. It's actually a bit misleading, by the way, to call it the Great Commission, because actually there are five Great Commissions. Five times Jesus, in meeting with his disciples following the resurrection, commands the church to take the gospel across cultures to every people. And while all the Great Commissions have in mind the same basic ministry, each one has its own emphasis. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's just before Jesus ascends into heaven. And the emphasis on this form of the Great Commission is on the power of the Holy Spirit and on the, the geographical expanse of the ministry. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, in verse 21, beginning in chapter 20, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so the emphasis in this version of the Great Commission is on the act of sending and the power of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins that comes from receiving the good news. And then there's a great commission at the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. Uh, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power. From on high. 
And so the emphasis in this form of the Great Commission is on the preaching ministry, especially repentance and forgiveness of sins, but also on the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Mark chapter 16, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover." This is one of the more remarkable forms of the Great Commission. Emphasis, again, is on preaching, preaching for faith and for believing and the consequences for believing or not believing. And then what is unique to Mark is the accompanying signs and wonders that were to follow the apostles, all of which, by the way, are recorded in the annals of the first century church. But as usual, when Christians think of the Great Commission, they usually think of the last version of the Great Commission, the passage that concludes the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And so hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age." Now, what is striking about the Matthew Great Commission is its comprehensive scope, how Jesus' command to take the gospel across the world is so expansive in its power, in its extent, and its universal effect. And in its comprehensive, encompassing power, Jesus promises that his last Great Commission will, in fact, be fulfilled. He guarantees it. And you'll notice that the text is actually easy to outline on that basis. The outline follows the use of the word all, all authority in heaven and on earth. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and I am with you always." And by the way, I I loved the uh, video that was presented at the first part of the service. The only complaint that I have about it is that Tim Crouch and Tim Meyer somehow stole my notes. (laughs) I can't believe I was hacked. I'm going to have to talk to those guys. But listen, only Jesus Christ could command such universal proclamations, all authority, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. Let me ask you, is there any other authority other than heaven and on earth? He alone possesses all authority, and that in and of itself is a guarantee of the outcome of the Great Commission. But what actually does his authority include? It's easy to sort of say all, but let's get specific for a moment so we can recognize why our success is so guaranteed. First of all, he has authority over the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. The teaching of the New Testament is that this world is under the control of the evil spiritual realm, the realm of principalities and powers. John says in his first epistle, chapter 5, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But we also know that our struggle in the final analysis is not against human forces, but against the forces of wickedness in the spiritual realm. 
Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We also recognize that Jesus has authority over the power of the enemy of our souls. Indeed, his death has conquered the wicked realm of Satan. Do you believe that? The author of Hebrews puts it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might, listen, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 about Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's all again, twice. Whatever spiritual forces are arrayed against the church and against the fulfillment of the Great Commission, they are all just so much inconsequential refuse in the dustbin of history. And that's why Jesus would declare in Matthew chapter 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you believe that? Is there any more definitive promise that guarantees the success of the Great Commission. But not only is Jesus authoritative over principalities and power, he's also authoritative over his people. That's you and me, right? He's given authority that extends to his own people. This should be no surprise to you. The first confession of the church back in the very first weeks and months of the church was Jesus is Lord. It's a simple confession, isn't it? If you come to Jesus as Savior, you come to him as Lord. You can't have one without the other. You cannot divide Christ. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot separate Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord. The word Lord is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Adonai, which means the sovereign one. You see, the Great Commission is the commission of the church. The people of God are to fulfill the Great Commission. Well, how can that happen? The church is weak. The church is often failing, but Christ never fails. He will build his church, and he will sustain his church. His church ultimately will obey Jesus Christ. His church will go into all the world. Why? Because Jesus has all authority, even over his people, even over you and me. And then finally, Jesus has authority over unbelievers. That's the coup de grace. That's the ultimate reason why the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Christ has authority over those who have not yet believed. How do you know, by the way, when you tell someone about Jesus that they will believe? Well, you really don't know, do you? But here's what you can be assured of. That Jesus Christ, by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, has the capacity and the authority to change the hearts of unbelievers. And so your gospel message will bear fruit. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you? How did you come to believe in Jesus? 
Was it because you're, because you're so smart? Hmm? Was it because you were so wise? Was it because you were so righteous? Heavens, no. You believe in Jesus is because God did something in you. He changed your heart, and he made you into someone who could believe. Listen to what Jesus prays in John chapter 17. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Listen to this. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, listen, to give eternal life to all you have given to him. Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth over principalities and powers, over his church, over those who have yet to believe. His authority guarantees that the Great Commission will succeed and that heaven will be populated by those from every people and tongue and tribe and nation, as it says in Revelation chapter 5. All authority. And then there's all nations. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so what are we to do with all nations? Well, we're to make disciples. What's a disciple? Well, a disciple essentially is a follower. Uh, the word literally means a student. If you're a disciple, if they were disciples back in those days, they enrolled in Jesus' peripatetic school. Oh, there he goes again. Peripatetic starts with P, like that other word that you know. What was that word? Propitiation, right. Peripatetic, what's that mean? Well, you see, Jesus walked all over the place. That's what peripatetic means, it has to do with walking. He walked all over Galilee, and he taught as he went, and people followed him, and they committed to memory the things that he taught, and many of them had left everything to follow Jesus. And so that's what it really means to be a disciple. So the church, in fulfilling the Great Commission, uh, is not just about making converts. It's about getting people not just to pray the sinner's prayer or about leading people to make a decision. The church fulfills the Great Commission in helping people to become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ, whose affections, whose dispositions, whose lifestyles follow Jesus, whose whole orientation becomes God-centered rather than self-centered. Making disciples implies a strong teaching ministry, as we'll see in a moment. So for all nations, we're to make disciples, but we're also to make them public disciples. Part of making disciples is to, bringing, is to bring people to be public about their commitment to Jesus because the text tells us baptizing them. Well, what does that mean? Well, the baptism obviously involves a great deal of instruction, and we'll go into that at some other point in time. But bottom line, believers in Jesus, when they are baptized, especially in the first century, were making a public profession of faith. And baptism is a public recognition that a person has been taken out of the world and brought into the fellowship of God's people, that they have died to sin in union with Jesus Christ and have been raised in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. That's what baptism entails. It is a public declaration that I belong to Jesus Christ. And if you've not been baptized, by the way, you've missed out on that opportunity to make that kind of public declaration of your union with Christ. If that's the case, then see Pastor Don or myself and let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. We can change that pretty quickly. But the bottom line is, don't be a closet disciple. 
Don't be a closet disciple. That's what baptism entailed in the first century. It makes it that way today. And then in addition to making disciples, uh, I think this text indicates that we should make them orthodox disciples. What does that mean? Well, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, God is a triune God, one God in three persons. It's the doctrine of the Trinity, and we find it right here in Scripture among many other places in the Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, flowing from the triune nature of God are all of the orthodox theological issues of life. The nature and character of God, the person and work of the Son, including the incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, every doctrine from creation to providence to redemption flows from the doctrine of the Trinity. Without the Trinity, Christianity dissolves. And so making disciples of all nations involves making followers of Jesus who understand and apply the fundamental truths of biblical Christianity. And so the Great Commission is about making disciples who are public about their commission, commitment and who are committed to biblical truth, orthodox faith and practice. And then there is the statement about all that Jesus commands, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission is a teaching ministry. Well, teaching what? Well, everything Jesus taught, actually, all of it. Well, what did he teach? Well, first of all, he taught everything we read in the Gospels. The Gospels are the records of Jesus' teaching. And then when we read the Gospels, we recognize that Jesus taught the Scriptures. Well, what Scriptures did he have? You tell me. He had the Old Testament, didn't he? He had the Hebrew Bible. And so we, for us to teach everything that Jesus taught, we teach the Old and the New Testament together because that's what Jesus taught all the things that Jesus taught. Well, what does that entail? Well, let me just give you a summary of a few of those things. Jesus taught the doctrine of God's Word. He taught that the Word of God given in the Scriptures is authoritative, inerrant, and infallible. Why are some people in the church today denying the doctrine of inerrancy? Jesus taught it. How can you believe in Jesus and not teach inerrancy? In fulfilling the Great Commission, we teach what Jesus taught about the Scriptures. We teach the character of God. Jesus taught the supremacy of God. He taught the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God. He taught the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and so much more. Jesus taught the nature and character of God, and we teach the same when we fulfill the Great Commission. We, we recognize that Jesus taught about the Son of God. Jesus explained and lived the life of the incarnate Son of the Father. His nature and character are on display in the Gospels. His nature and character are explained in the epistles. In fulfilling the Great Commission, we teach the person and work of Jesus Christ. He also taught God's plan. He taught the nature of our fallen humanity and our desperate need of salvation. He taught, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. God promised redemption of his people from the very moment of the fall, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that through the offspring of the woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed. 
The whole Old Testament foreshadowed and prophesied the coming of the saving Messiah Jesus. The Gospels reveal what was described in the shadows only in the Old Testament. As we fulfill the Great Commission, we teach God's plan. And we also teach God's future. Jesus promised his return. The Bible promises that that his return will bring the consummation of the kingdom of God that was initiated when Jesus came in his first advent. That we look forward to the millennial kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness upon his return, to an eternity of glory in the presence of God and the assurance that can only be experienced by those who believe in Jesus Christ. So when we fulfill the Great Commission, we teach what Jesus taught about our glorious future. And then finally, there is the statement about always. Jesus promises the presence of himself. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His presence, I am with you always. Jesus never sends the church out to fulfill the Great Commission alone. He's not the kind of commander who sits in his desk in the celestial pentagon while his troops are floundering on the other side of the world. No, he's right there leading the charge. Remember when we studied the glory of God a couple of weeks ago and how important the presence of God was in going with Israel through the wilderness and into the promised land, whereupon Moses said, if you don't go with us, don't send me. That's how important the promise of the presence is. That was just a foreshadowing of the presence of Jesus with his church in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church can't do it without Jesus. And his presence is yet one more guarantee of the success of the Great Commission. And not just for a moment, but in perpetuity. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. However long it takes to fulfill the Great Commission, you can rest assured that Jesus will never retire. I know that's a tough word to say in a retirement community. (laughs) Jesus will never retire until the Great Commission is fulfilled. He'll never resign. He'll never even be distracted. He'll never, take, take, he'll never stop pursuing its fulfillment. The church can commit itself to the Great Commission with the confidence that the Lord of the church is committed to the Great Commission, committed wholeheartedly and for as long as it takes. This is Winston Churchill on steroids. Remember Winston Churchill back in World War II? Never give in, he said. Never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty. That was just a man. Even Churchill had his limits, but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have any limits like that. He's the God-man, the eternally begotten Son of God. He will never give in, never give up, until there are disciples from every people, tongue, and tribe, and nation. Do you believe that, dear friends? The Great Commission. You know, that's, it's part of the DNA of the village church because it flows from the heart of Jesus Christ, the all-encompassing command of Christ for his church to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all his commandments because all authority has been given to Jesus and because he promises his presence until the job is finished. That's why he guarantees it. Our greatest purpose, we talk about in our mission statement that We're building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope. Well, our greatest purpose in the village church is to fulfill the Great Commission. 
It's not only our greatest purpose, it's our greatest privilege. And we have every confidence in doing so because Jesus Christ guarantees its fulfillment. Are you with him? Heavenly Father, we come to you offering ourselves because Jesus himself has promised his presence to take us the distance, to get us across the goal line, to fulfill the most glorious engagement of mission known to to the human race. And we pray, Father, that you would sanctify us for this purpose, that you would set us apart for the things that you want to accomplish in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.